Okay, so this past week, I've been working on actually two different sermons, often in the same day. Sometimes I actually get them mixed up in my brain. Hopefully that won't happen this morning. Um, another advantage of reading from a script. Let's just hope that I got the right script. Okay, the other one is only half done, so if I did get them mixed up, I guess we would know that in about 15 or 20 minutes. Could be a strange and abrupt ending, like many of my sermons. All right. So as Nate mentioned last week, his subject is Jesus, the only way to God. That finished up the book we have been using, titled On Guard by William Lane Craig. And last year, when I was mapping out this series on basic apologetics, I thought of two other subjects not addressed in that book that I would believe that I believed would be helpful to cover. Uh, we will deal with one of those today, the other one next week. And I suppose you could think of them as addendums to this series. Today, I want to address the integrity of the New Testament manuscripts from which our English Bibles are translated from. It's becoming more and more common to hear skeptical questions, even objections about that, not just from critics of the Bible, but also from the average Joe. I just came across it again two or three weeks ago. And you might remember that I covered this subject a few years ago in a two-part uh, series, and because of that, I was actually a little hesitant at first to do a rerun of this, but I am embarrassed to say that though I had researched that subject, took a lot of time to understand it and organize it and turn it into two sermons, and even though I remembered some of the material I had presented, I had definitely forgotten a lot of it. <laughs> And um, this may have to do more with an aging brain than anything else, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, I figured a review would probably be helpful for all of us. <clears throat> and that <clears throat> this series on apologetics would be a good opportunity for that. <clears throat> now, this subject, can we trust the manuscripts our English Bibles have been translated from? It usually doesn't find its way in books on apologetics. It's typically included in books that deal with the origin of the Bible, stuff like that. But given the increasing pressure from skeptics and critics to discredit the Bible and therefore discredit the faith itself, defending the integrity of the text is certainly a work of apologetics. And so I took those two sermons, combined them, reworked them, saw some things that need to be updated, other things that needed to be explained better, and, and to squeeze it all in, eliminated um, some stuff that would have been interesting but probably not all that necessary. So let's dive into it. As you all know, we have had critics, we've always have had critics who claim that the Bible's full of myths, others who claim the Bible's full of contradictions, and those who scoff at the idea that the Bible is God's revelation inspired by him and so on. But in more recent times, we've had to deal with yet another attack, that the text itself has been compromised. And the objection goes something along this line. You probably have heard words to this effect. Well, who can really say what the Bible today even is? For centuries, Scripture was copied by hand, countless mistakes have been made, not to mention intentional changes, all of which have altered the text significantly, and so we don't really have a clue on what the authors actually wrote. The Bible we have today is nothing like what it started out to be. Ever heard anything like that? Okay, this is a big argument that the Muslims use against um, Christianity. So some people, even Christians, seem to have this impression that before the printing press, the process was so haphazard and disorganized and, and, and uncontrolled that we could only hope 
that our modern-day Bibles aren't too corrupted. That's the best we got. We can just hope that that's the case. It's kind of like eating hot dogs. You know, I want to believe they're okay to eat, but just don't tell me what's in them. You know, I want to believe the Bible hasn't been compromised, and so don't tell me about the probability of mistakes and discrepancies and changes. Now, on the surface, it looks like there could be something to this argument that critics raise. Up until the time of the printing press, around the year 1440 or so, the scriptures were copied by hand. That's a long time. The ancient manuscripts from that day that still exist, kept mostly in museums and libraries and historical churches, that sort of thing, they are handwritten copies of handwritten copies of handwritten copies. I couldn't even copy something like that small letter of 2 John with only 13 verses without making a, copy, without making a couple mistakes much less the whole New Testament um, that contains around 8,000 verses. And apart from human error, one does have to wonder if there were times when the text was changed intentionally. Critics certainly like to imply this, that there were those who had their own agendas and took the liberty to alter things on purpose. And they exploit that doubt by pointing out that we don't have the original writings to compare anything to. And so the whole thing does seem quite questionable. And these charges appear to be gaining momentum, and we do need to be ready for them. And now you and I, we don't have to be experts in this field, but all of us should have at least some basic knowledge of the allegations and be equipped to provide a response. So as to answer others, address any honest questions that others might have about this, and to answer any doubts we personally might have. Because we all want to read, study, teach, enjoy, and apply the scriptures, knowing that we don't have to be unduly concerned about whether it is riddled with errors and man-made changes, right? Okay. Now, for our purposes today, to help keep things simple, we will limit our discussion to that of the New Testament, though there are certainly similarities, the questions and issues take a slightly different path for the Old Testament. The short answer to the Old Testament is that Jesus trusted the text. He often quoted from it, believed it had authority, regarded it as the word of God without errors, and if he trusted it, then so can we. Uh, there were basically two Bibles of his day, the uh, Masoretic text, uh, which was the Hebrew, and then the Septuagint, which was the Greek. One could go further into the history of those manuscripts, the process of copying them, and so on, but the fact that Jesus accepted the Bible of his day as one that had faithfully preserved what the authors had written is sufficient. And most of the discussions today do center around the New Testament, not so much the Old, because critics always seem to be much more fired up to discredit Christianity than anything else. For instance, this book, you probably are aware of it, uh, it is a New York Times bestseller misquoting Jesus. You know, did Jesus really say what he thought he said? Has his words been changed? You know, this sort of thing gets all sorts of doubts worked up. Okay, um, I needed a blank slide there. All right, so for this morning, we will also not take time to deal with matters related to translation. It is a related question. It's different. Translation, of course, deals with the converting of the Greek text into English. How accurate is the NIV, the ESV, the King James, and so on? Uh, a while back, we spent a lot of time on that. Today, our focus is on whether the Greek text that those translations use is reliable. Does everyone see the difference? Okay, pretty basic stuff. So again, just to make sure we're, we are all tracking together, 
For this morning, we are concerned about roughly a 1,400-year period before the printing press when the scriptures were copied by hand thousands of times. We want to know, were mistakes ever made? If so, were those mistakes then duplicated in the next generation of copies? And so on. Did those mistakes ever get discovered and corrected? If so, how were they able to tell? And were any changes made intentionally? And basically, can we trust the Greek text that our New Testaments have been translated from? So maybe you never worried about any of this. Maybe I'm raising doubts that are now unhelpful. Maybe your attitude has been, I just want to enjoy the hot dog. Please don't tell me what's in it. But today we're going to get into it. So here it is. This is the crux of the issue. There exist today roughly 5,900 ancient Greek manuscripts. That's a lot, consisting of either a complete copy of the New Testament or a part of it. 5,900. And these are just the ones that have been found. More are being added all the time with new discoveries. To put things in perspective, only a fraction of these 5,900 manuscripts were available to the translators of the King James Bible that was published back in the 1600s. So the number continues to grow. Now, if we were to take all 5,900 copies and lay them out on a giant table and compare them side by side, well, as to be expected, some differences will become apparent. The New Testament has roughly 138,000 words in 8,000 verses. There's a lot of room for mistakes to be made, especially with this huge collection that we have here of 5,900 manuscripts. Critics of the Bible claim that there are somewhere between 200,000 and 400,000 such mistakes. That's a disturbing number. 200 to 400,000. But such figures are highly misleading. First, they are just estimates, exaggerated estimates, because no one has actually ever counted all of them. Secondly, mistake is too strong of a word. Scholars prefer the word variance. Uh, for sure, variants include mistakes, but not every variant is a mistake. For instance, all languages evolve. A manuscript copied in 1300 AD might reflect updates in spelling and grammar that we would not find in a manuscript copied a thousand years earlier. So yes, that's a variant, but it's not an error. It's not a mistake. Thirdly, um, those who like to use these inflated numbers usually include an additional 19,300 manuscripts that are translated into other languages, like Latin, for instance. And that raises the number to over 25,000, which significantly raises the potential for more variances, um, differences. Okay, everyone following me so far? And fourthly, <clears throat> the way they count these variants is itself questionable, dubious. For instance, if one single word is misspelled and that misspelling is copied in a thousand manuscripts, it is counted as a thousand variants, not one, but a thousand. So all of this should strike us as some sort of sleight of hand manipulation here. What I have learned is that scholars who deal with this, they don't all agree on what a variant is, how to count them, and even which manuscripts should be included in that count. Are there a lot of variants? Yes, we have to accept that. There are a lot, but by far most of them are relatively minor and easy to catch and easy to correct. So, 
<clears throat> if I hand copied those 13 verses that make up 2 John and handed it to you, chances are really high that you would catch any mistakes I made, even if you did not use your Bible to compare it to. Common mistakes would be that of accidentally missing a word in a sentence, misspellings, punctuation, that sort of thing, getting two words in a sentence, maybe turned around. We would not, however, expect to find me replacing the name Jesus with Buddha, all right? Or the word joy for lust, or deceivers for trusted teachers, or change the part about Jesus coming in the flesh to Jesus coming in the spirit, or that I would just take the liberty to add a whole paragraph refuting modalism, all right? And this is what critics seem to imply, that the variances bring to question the very message of the Bible. Well, this is simply not the case. When it comes down to it, less than 1% of the New Testament is questionable. And none of those passages that are in question deal with any significant doctrine or Christian truth. Nothing substantial rises or falls upon any word, phrase, or sentence that carries some uncertainty with it. And furthermore, when uncertainties do occur, they are fully disclosed in the footnotes. Nothing is hidden from the critical reader. The alternate reading is made available. If there is some doubt about something said in a particular verse, well, the footnote will provide the other possibility or possibilities. But again, nothing all that substantial rides on any of those verses that are in question. And so while 5,900 manuscripts does lend itself to a lot of discrepancies, that large number also serves as a great check and balance. The more manuscripts we have to compare, the more confidence we have that the variants can be caught and corrected. Everyone follow me so far? Okay. So I think the best way to illustrate this, all, all this kind of thing, is to propose a possible scenario. So let's go back to maybe the 1950s, before the internet, before computers, copying machines, all that stuff, back to the golden age when the common person used pen and paper, and when everyone had an Aunt Mildred, right? I'm from the 50s, and I had an Aunt Mildred, and almost everybody lived in the town, in a town like Mayberry, all right? So you might remember this illustration from years ago, but I think it's very helpful in discussions like this. <clears throat> At every family reunion in late June, Aunt Mildred would bring her famous, who remembers what it is, rhubarb custard pie. This was a long-standing tradition going back decades as long as people could remember. The pie won awards at the county fair. It was a talk of town. Nobody could come close to duplicating it. It was a secret recipe that she kept all to herself. It was all in her head. She had never written it down. Well, as she aged into her late 80s, her daughters convinced her to share the recipe with them, and she did. And so there around her kitchen table, she wrote it all out on a scrap piece of paper. And each of her six daughters hand copied it for their own use. Over the next weeks, months, even years, each of these daughters shared that recipe with their cousins and friends and so on, and with their own daughters. And many who got the recipe also passed it on to others yet when requested or the need arose. So probably 60 or more copies were, all, were out there, all of which were copies of copies, handwritten copies. Mildred didn't need it herself, and so she tossed away her original. Jump ahead now to um, around 70 years later to 2022. 
A distant family member who happened to hear about Mildred's pie was eager to find the recipe, and so she reached out to family members and even Facebook asking if anyone had it. She got several responses, even from a couple people she didn't even know. No less than 20 surviving copies were rounded up. She spread them out on the kitchen table, and she noticed some differences. However, of the 20, um, eight were exactly the same. No variations. Of the remaining, 12, five had misspelled words. Another one had an inverted phrase, mix then chop, rather than chop then mix. One had an extra ingredient that wasn't found in any of the others, and, one also, and that one also had some wording that wasn't exact either, saying, let cool overnight, while all the others said, let cool until morning. And another copy was incomplete, as though the, another copy was incomplete as though the bottom had been accidentally torn off and lost. And then some said to preheat the oven, but others added the detail, preheat the oven to 400 degrees. So the question is, you know what the question is, do you think Aunt Mildred's recipe could be accurately reconstructed from those 20 copies, knowing that her original recipe is nowhere to be found, knowing that there are a number of differences with some of those copies? Again, eight are identical, five have misspelled words, one has an inverted phrase, one has an added ingredient, three of them provide an additional detail about preheating the oven, and one is incomplete, missing the last few lines at the bottom. Could we reconstruct that recipe? Sure we could. And we would have confidence that the pie we made from that recipe we re that we reconstructed would be Aunt Mildred's pie, right? New Testament scholars are confident as well. Scholars are 100% confident that at least 99.5% of the New Testament has been accurately reconstructed. And unlike Mildred's pie, uh, uh, unlike that recipe of only 20 copies, the New Testament enjoys a treasure trove of 5,900 copies to work from. And again, of the part that makes up the less than 1%, no significant doctrine of the Christian faith is affected. Now, we have to be very clear about this so as to not overstate the case. This does not prove that the New Testament is true, or that it is God's word, or that it has authority over our lives, and so on. Those are different questions that are taken up elsewhere. What it does say, however, is this. We have a great deal of confidence in knowing what the New Testament writers actually wrote. We can trust the integrity of the text. Okay, everyone following me so far? All right, so reconstructing Mildred's recipe involves a discipline known as textual criticism, and this is the science of studying and comparing handwritten copies so as to reconstruct what the original document actually said. It is what we use to reconstruct the wording of any ancient literature, whether it's Homer, Plato, Josephus, so on, including the New Testament. Generally speaking, the more copies one has, and the earlier the copies, the more confidence there is in that reconstruction. And again, we have a lot of copies, and a number of them are very early. So before we go any further, um, let's pause to, familiar, to familiarize ourselves with a couple important terms that pertain to this subject. First is the word manuscript. I've been using it quite a bit, so let's actually define it. The term comes from manually scripting, 
And so technically, a manuscript is a handwritten document as opposed to, as opposed to something that was uh, published by a printing press. So in the footnotes of your Bible, you'll often see the word manuscript abbreviated with the letters MS or, for the plural, MSS. And those who manually script copies professionally were called scribes, all right? The other important word is autograph, and typically we think here of somebody's signature, but in, um, in this context, it refers to the original handwritten document, the one composed by the author himself with his own pen. In our case, it'd be men like Matthew, John, Paul, Luke, Peter, and so on. And again, we do not have any of these, and that's probably, when you think about it, a good thing, given how superstitious many Christians can be. We can only imagine that such documents would probably become objects of worship. Crowds would flock to them, thinking that if they could just touch one of them, they would be healed. There'd be no end to the efforts made to break into museums and libraries trying to steal them. They'd be sold on the black market for millions of dollars and so on. It'd be a mess. So it's probably a good thing that they've been lost. And, and certainly we'd be more obsessed with the documents themselves than with what they actually said. <laughs> That's the irony of it. So regarding these autographs, the issue isn't the time gap between the autograph itself and us. The issue is the time gap between the autograph and its earliest surviving copies. Big difference. And we have some very early copies. We have 40 very, very early partial copies of the New Testament dated from the late first century, late first century to the early part of the third century. These range from small fragments, part of a page, to even a collection of several books. And there is enough in just those, those very, very early manuscripts written on papyrus to reconstruct the original text of the New Testament. All right, so let's now take a moment to talk about dating. If the manuscript was written on papyrus, then it would be very, very early, probably before the year 300. If it were written on parchment with large, bold letters, what we call unshields, then typically scholars would place this between 300 and 600. And if it were written on parchment, which is like a treated leather, but using smaller cursive lowercase letters called minuscules, this would date more or less between 600 and 1400. So this gives you kind of an idea of how the dating process would actually start. And then from there, scholars would use other means to narrow it down to something more precise. And again, the earlier the manuscript, the higher the confidence in its accuracy. So I say all that to kind of give you this picture. If one of, if one of the copies of Aunt Mildred's recipe was written on the back of a 1958 calendar, we were naturally given more weight than the one written on the back of a packing slip from Amazon. Got it? It's that simple. So again, all this is part of textual criticism. Where did this manuscript come from? How old is it? Is it reliable? Is it related to other manuscripts? How does it compare? And then based on those answers, the ultimate question, what contribution can it make to reconstructing what the autograph itself said? So let's now put everything in perspective by comparing the New Testament to other literature of the ancient world. Um, we won't take time to work through each of these, but this chart is pretty helpful in showing um, this. The first column refers to the author or the composer. Um, the second column is the, surviving, the number of manuscripts that 
uh, that we have available to us, surviving manuscripts. And the third column is the time gap between the autograph and the earliest surviving copy. So the number of copies here can change as new discoveries are made, but these figures are pretty, pretty up to date. And the number listed here again would be either complete copies or partial copies, whatever we're talking about. Most of our knowledge of ancient history comes from the documents on this chart, but none of them compare to the New Testament when it comes to confidence of integrity. Homer's epic poem, Iliad, has the most impressive manuscript evidence for any secular work with about 1,800 copies. But no scholar doubts the reconstruction of that, and yet the New Testament has more than three times as many manuscripts. And as you see, the time gap is much, much less. <clears throat> far more manuscripts available with the New Testament than any other, far closer in time to the original composition to the earliest surviving copy than any other. Again, just keep this in mind, the issue is, is it the time gap between the autograph itself and us? It's between the autograph and its earliest surviving copies. Many of you will be familiar with Greg Kokel, and here is what he said about all of this. I think this is well put. If we reject the authenticity of the New Testament on textual grounds, we'd also have to reject every work of, an, of antiquity prior to the year 1000 AD since there is less evidence for their authenticity than for the New Testament. <clears throat> so just about anything you read on this subject, this will be the conclusion that the author will make. He might say it differently, but this particular point will be pressed. When compared to other ancient literature, the New Testament gets the highest mark of confidence. And this is pretty cool. This is pretty reassuring. But there's more. <clears throat> In addition to the 5,900 complete or partial Greek manuscripts, we also have 10,000 Latin manuscripts, copies translated from the Greek. Latin, of course, was the language of the Western Church, where Christianity enjoyed most of its early growth and expansion. 10,000 of these, and over 9,300 in other languages of the ancient Mideastern world, Coptic, Ethiopic, Ethiopic, Armenian, Slavic, and so on. That raises the total number to over 25,000, all before the printing press. And these are just the ones that we have found so far. Certainly the 5,900 that are in Greek are considered the most valuable, but the others are a treasure trove as well and very useful for cross-checking. We also have secondary sources that are also helpful. One would be the writings of the early church fathers. These are instructional books written by church leaders who led the church after the deaths of the apostles. Scholars have noted that if no copies whatsoever of the New Testament had ever survived, the quotes of the New Testament found in the writings of these men would be sufficient alone to, recon to reconstruct practically the entire New Testament. And similar to this would be church service books. They're called lexicons and church catechisms and the like. Surviving manuscripts of these often contain citations from the New Testament, sometimes just large sections of scripture. And these are extremely valuable as well. So when you put it all together, there is just an abundance of material available for cross-checking. So let's now get somewhat of an idea of the whole process. We'll do kind of a, a quick survey here from the time that a New Testament book was written all the way up to our modern English day Bibles. Let's try to connect all these dots here so you can see the whole thing. In the earliest period, we simply had individual letters and books circulating around. 
For instance, we can assume that when the Ephesians received Paul's letter to them, someone at that church made copies of it, a couple copies for the church, for members to borrow and read, um, copies for those members who could afford to have them, and some copies to be passed on to other churches nearby in the region. And copies would be made of those copies and circulated as opportunities would arise. And this sort of thing went on with all the letters and books repeating throughout the following generations. And as to be expected, churches, even people, started to assemble certain collections. And at one, some point, probably in the mid-2nd century, these collections would be copied and circulated together as a set, like the four Gospels as a set, or the letters of Paul as a set, or the letters of Peter, or all the writings of John. And as you can see, these different sets or collections were bundled together eventually and became a whole set, what we know of as the, as the New Testament. Okay, so got four people still following along <laughs> as the New Testament, right? Sometimes these collections included other Christian, early Christian writings as well. And as the gospel spread to the ancient world, many of these New Testaments were translated into other languages. The gospel was spreading fast and was spreading far, which meant that the New Testament was spreading fast and far as well. In the second and third centuries, many of the scriptures were unfortunately confiscated and destroyed during the great persecutions under Roman emperors. But that simply compelled them to copy and circulate even more. They were motivated and energized to get even more copies made. They were the, like the first Bible smugglers. And given how the Bible was condemned to be destroyed, Christians were just faithful to make a lot of them. So today we might think of like manufacturers of guns and ammo, you know, when, a, when there's a threat that there's going to be some law that's going to confiscate them all, what happens? You know, they all work 24-7, 365 to produce as many as they want because demand, the demand is so high. So the demand for the New Testament really escalated a lot during the time of persecution. As we move into the 4th century, Christianity is eventually legalized, and for re reasons both good and bad, it became more institutionalized. One thing that was good was that the scriptures could now be copied professionally, ensuring more accuracy and precision. A popular method would be to have a trained reader carefully read out loud one sentence at a time, while eight or ten professional scribes would write it out, whether in Greek or in another language, like Latin. Obviously, errors were made, even under the best of conditions, and often those errors would be caught and fixed when that copy itself would be copied. Certain major cities, like Constantinople and Alexandria, they developed their own standardized text that they used to make copies from. So a lot of work would go into making sure that those particular documents were clean, that all the known uh, flaws were corrected, and they knew what kinds of mistakes to look for. Most were very minor, like spelling errors and mix-ups with abbreviations, numbers getting turned around, easy to spot, easy to fix, no big deal. The kinds of errors that they were looking for, we could divide them up into like five categories. A popular one was referred to as errors of the eye, mistakes made by failing to see a word or verse correctly. Sometimes letters or words or even a whole line would be skipped over during the copying process or the opposite of that, accidental repetitions. Then there's the occasional mishap of accidentally re reversing two letters or two words, and mix-ups in numbers. You probably have noticed this in the different versions of the Gospels you've read. And uh, uh, did Jesus say to forgive 70 
seven times or seven times 70 or what exactly was that there? Or even the mark of the Antichrist. Some manuscripts have 666, others have 616, okay? Those sorts of things. Um, another similar to this would be errors of the ear. When someone is reading the text, a scribe might not hear it correctly. The word for rope and the word for camel sound virtually the same. And this would explain why some ancient manuscripts have Jesus saying in Matthew 19, it is easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when you think about it, the word rope seems to work better for the illustration than camel. I mean, where in the world did the idea come from of trying to push a camel through the eye of a needle? And so it's quite reasonable to see how a scribe would have assumed he heard the word rope. And then we have errors of memory or what we could attribute this to is brain conditioning. There are not many of these, but they do occur. I'll illustrate this with a simple experiment. Fill in the blank. For the fruit of the blank consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. What word comes to mind? Spirit, all right? But the verse I just referred to is actually Ephesians 5, 9, not Galatians 5, and it's actually fruit of the light. So our brains are conditioned to think fruit of the Spirit because of that popular verse in Galatians. And this would have been true of the scribes as well. But like other mistakes, these sorts of things were discovered, corrected. And then there are errors of judgment. Some manuscripts had additional notes in the margins, tops, bottoms, and sides written all over the place. And if a scribe wasn't careful, these notes could end up being copied into the text and then passed on to the next generation of copies. In Mark 9, Jesus cast a demon out of a boy. The disciples had tried. They failed. So they asked Jesus why they failed. He answered them, this prayer can only come, this kind can only come out by prayer. But some manuscripts read, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. It's quite possible that the words and fasting may have originally been a note in the margin. And it's very likely that the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, was a note in the margin that eventually found its way into the text. But again, does the faith rise or fall on this? No, I mean, the truths about God's kingdom, power, and glory are clearly taught elsewhere in the Bible. And then there are errors in writing. If the Handwriting of a scribe at certain points is less than precise, then this could cause problems for other scribes that copied from his manuscript. Some of our English letters, like some of our English letters, there are Greek letters that look quite similar. But again, these are errors, uh, the kind of things that are easy to find, easy to fix. And along with innocent mistakes, there are also situations where changes took place intentionally, but we can be assured that nothing sinister was going on with any of them. Some were the result, as mentioned earlier, of updating the text to newer standards of grammar and spelling. All languages evolve, um, but uh, that, that attempt, of course, did result in differences, but these are variants, um, not mistakes. Other examples include attempts to smooth out awkwardly worded sentences or to harmonize gospel accounts, clarify doctrinal statements, try to correct historical or factual details that didn't need to be corrected, so you'd have to go back and correct what was supposed to be the correction but was really a mistake, and so on. Uh, so there are not many of these. The more substantial ones are going to be noted in the footnotes of your Bible. The encouraging thing in all of this, again, is that scholars have been able to reconstruct 99.5% of the original New Testament. And of the, that part that's questionable, no significant doctrine is affected by this. So an obvious question is, 
when manuscripts are compared and a difference is found, how is it decided which rendering should be used? Well, they would simply use a Ouija board. I mean, it worked really well for them. <laughs> People are still awake. They're still listening. They're still listening. I got it. All right. So we're not going to take time to deal with this in a lot of great detail, but the process looks something like this. And the higher up on the list, the more weight it is given. So it's kind of listed in priorities here. You start with dating. What the older manuscript says is preferred over what is said in a one that was written later. Secondly, the more difficult reading is preferred over a smoother one, because we are assuming that a scribe tried to fix it. The shorter reading is preferred over a longer one, because it's assumed that the scribe added something to help explain what was written. You know, Aunt Mildred said preheat the oven. But years later, her niece added to 400 degrees, and copies were made from her copies that said that. Number four, the reading with the widest geographical support is favored. If, for instance, only the copies from Alexandria had the word amen at the end of the prayer, and none of the other copies anywhere from everywhere else had it, then it was assumed that the word amen had actually been added to some master manuscript in Alexandria. Number five, the reading that is the most conforms to the style of the author, explains itself. And six, the reading that doesn't reflect a doctrinal bias. And this again assumes that a scribe tried to fix something that he thought needed to be clarified. So if we had time, we would look at examples of these, but this at least gives you an idea of the process. By incorporating these particular guidelines, scholars have concluded, for instance, that the story in John 8 about the woman caught in adultery and those additional endings to Mark's gospel, and the long ending to the Lord's prayer, and so on, are probably not part of the original autograph, but that they were added later on. And all of this is pointed out very clearly in the footnotes of your modern Bibles. Nothing is hidden here. It's all out in the open. So this brings us to those pages of your Bible that you probably have never read, and that's the preface. And the, the preface is very relevant. It talks about a lot of this sort of thing, and it gives us the name of the Greek text itself that, was, that the translation uh, was, was used for, that, the, that the, the Greek text that was used for the translation. The popular translations we most use today, the NIV, ESV, NLT, CSB, NASV, and so on, they all base their translations upon what is called a critical text, that was published by the United Bible Society. The preface in your Bible probably refers to this as the 27th or 28th edition of the Nestle Aland text. That's, that's the actual name of it. And it is constantly being revised, updated as more manuscripts are discovered and made available. This has become the standard. It's regarded as representing the latest and best in textual scholarship. And it takes into account everything that's available. All 5,900 of the surviving Greek manuscripts, the over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, over 9,300 manuscripts in other languages, the New Testament citations and the writings of the church fathers, and all the rest that's available from the ancient world. Now, in comparison, you'll find this very interesting, the King James, translated 400 years ago, used something called the Received Text, uh, which only drew from a small number of manuscripts only seven, and none of them had been written earlier than the 12th century. However, while we're on the subject, this does not mean that the manuscripts behind the King James are unreliable, not at all. 
The remarkable thing here is that except for the type of English used, the content between the King James and modern translations is strikingly similar. It's remarkable. And this testifies to just how much all of these manuscripts agree. There are some differences, but nothing major. So imagine reconstructing Aunt Mildred's recipe and then 30 years later coming across another 100 copies of it and finding that after comparing them, you end up with the same recipe. The confidence level for the recipe that you had been using beforehand would be now even higher yet. And that's exactly what we have with the New Testament. <clears throat> Still tracking with me? All right, I'm halfway through. We're getting there. Actually, I'm just finishing up. The bottom line is, don't let anyone get away with saying that we don't have a clue on what the original authors wrote or that the New Testament documents can't be trusted. Four important takeaways from this morning. First, when it comes down to it, less than 1% of the New Testament is questionable. We are 100% confident that over 99% of the 138,000 words that make up the New Testament are pure. Secondly, when there is something questionable, it is noted in the footnotes. There are no surprises. Three, of those parts that are questionable, none of them deal with any significant doctrine or Christian truth. And four, if we were to reject the New Testament on textual grounds, we'd also have to reject every work of antiquity between every work of antiquity before 1000 AD, because there is far less evidence for their integrity than for the New Testament. <clears throat> so we can read, study, meditate on, teach, enjoy, and apply the scriptures, trust the scriptures, knowing that we don't have to be unduly concerned about the integrity of the text. Amen? Let's stand. These words from King David. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. May God bless his holy, infallible, trustworthy, and life-giving word. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love.